Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 309 of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her brain. And we have such big brains. Okay, we're not going to go there. We just know that we have a terrific show coming up and that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized for women. To learn more, hop on over to SmartyPantsVitamins.com. And here's your first reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because we love hearing from you. Your feedback is positively golden. All right, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind, her body, her life. It's all about her. So I have a heroine of mine on as our guest today, and that is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. I am all things brain and neuroscience, as most of you know out there. And good heavens, we have a brand new book, which is absolutely amazing. Dr. Barrett has written a book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. She'll explain the half part of this. Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It just came out. It's short and sweet and very rich, kind of like carrot cake. So Dr. Barrett is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital. She is also chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Harvard University. I could go on um, through three more birthdays reading her bio, and I'm just going to tell you right now, we're in in the presence of a very, very special icon in science. Dr. Barrett, welcome to the Herb Podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm I'm blushing. I'm blushing. I know. I saw that, actually. Ah, yeah. And, and you thought this was just by internet. You're wrong. So, so here's my question. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book because... I think science is really cool. And uh, when we used to, you know, go to dinner parties and such before COVID, we'd go to dinner parties and uh, by the end of the dinner party, I would be uh, enraptured in discussing some interesting, cool little tidbit about the brain. Everybody in the room would be hanging on my words. And, uh, you know, I realized that there's a lot of really cool stuff here um, that is entertaining and interesting, that is really fun to talk about, and that actually can help people live maybe a little bit better, or at least think about some big ideas about what it means to be human and what kind of a human, you know, you want to be. And why should you have to read a 300-page book to get all that stuff? Why not just have a little book of essays that you could, you know, read on the beach or, um, you know, polish off in a couple of hours? I, I absolutely loved it. Okay, everyone's raising their hand. They're saying, why a half? Seven and a half. Yeah, so people who know me really well will tell you that it's probably just because I like to be different, you know? But uh, the real answer 
which is much less interesting, is that originally it was seven lessons, and one of my early readers uh, thought that the first lesson, which is about brain evolution, was really too long and thought that I should split off a little bit of it, particularly the beginning part, which is why do we even have brain in the first place? Like, what's a brain good for? It's a pretty expensive organ, so why do we even have it? And it's not really a full lesson on brain evolution. It's just really a small snippet, a really interesting snippet, I think. But I thought, well, I don't really want a book called Eight Lessons About the Brain. That doesn't sound very interesting. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, it's not a whole lesson anyway. So seven and a half really does sum it up. It's truth in advertising. I love it. And the half lesson's title is, your brain is not for thinking. What? Okay, now help us with that. <laughs> now, come on now. Come on. These are all, you know, I, I saw what you were playing around with. I saw your TED talk too. So I, I know, you know, your little MO here. Um, and that is your exquisitely provocative and in an incredibly smart and strategic way. So, you know, like what? Um, your brain is not for thinking. So help us with that. Sure. I mean, you know, our brains can do pretty miraculous things. Um, we think, we feel, we talk, we see. These are all pretty amazing things that the brain, the, that our brains can do. Um, but if you look back in evolutionary time, and if you also look into the structure of the brain, what you can see is that the brain's most important job is not thinking or feeling or seeing or any of the other miraculous things it can do. Your brain's most important job is regulating the systems of your body. You know, right now, you and I are, are I'm sitting, I'm imagining you're sitting too, maybe, maybe many of our listeners are sitting, um, or maybe they're standing, but, but quietly, right? Like, you're, we're listening to each other and having a chat. Inside each of us, though, is this real drama unfolding, a drama that is made from many, many, many parts that have to be coordinated, your heart, your lungs, your immune system, you know, and so on. And so your brain's most important job is regulating the systems of your body to keep you alive and well. And everything it does, think, feel, see, it does in the service of regulating your body. Now, I don't experience my own life that way. I'm sure you don't either. I don't experience every, you know, every feeling of happiness, every insult I bear, every hug I give. You know, I don't experience all of these things in those terms. But under the hood, that is the m real focus of the brain. Um, its most important job is to uh, regulate the systems of your body to keep you alive and well. You know, the picture that comes to mind is uh, the connectome, which was uh, originated by uh, some of the folk in Boston, which is, I assume, where you're from, and uh, the MIT guys, um, who put together this magnificent uh, 3D picture of the brain and really dispelled once and for all the fact that, you know, you have two separate hemispheres and nobody talks to the other and then the whole thing is sort of crazy. Um, instead, you have this beautiful, colorful, extraordinary uh, collection of networks, which brings us to 
you have one brain, not three. Now, I've got to be totally transparent. Everyone knows out there in the Her Podcast land that I have uh, two uh, beloved German shepherds who uh, walk me. I don't walk them. They just drag me along the street um, because they're that powerful and they love to be able to do that. So I always listen to uh, great stuff continue to learn, do a little multitasking. And I've been listening to your your beautiful voice um, on Audible for your book. And um, a chapter that I listened to twice already to really absorb it all was this chapter, which I think is absolutely huge, which is the you have one brain, not three. Um, because I think so many of us out there um, have been hearing in business literature and professional literature, you know, uh, these these uh, stereotypes about, you know, the uh, reptile brain and your primitive brain and, and all the rest of it. Like, like we have a little separate sections there that uh, are, are really kind of existing solo uh, doing their thing. But you're saying, no, that's not the way this works. Explain this. Sure. So the story that most of us have heard many times in popular science books, in maybe even in textbooks, in articles and so on, sometimes in you know leadership training programs and so on, is that we have um, a brain that evolved in three layers, that we have an inner lizard, you know, a, uh, a lizard brain, which is the home of reptile, the, the home of, um, of instincts, so our reptilian brain, the home of instincts the um a a layer on top of that which is sometimes called the limbic system um uh, the a brain region called the amygdala which is kind of like the rock star of the brain because a lot of people like to write about it part of this limbic system limbic just means layer a border uh, over the the reptile brain um this limbic system is for emotion and then on top of that supposedly evolved a a cerebral cortex, sometimes called the neocortex for new cortex, which is supposedly the home for rationality. So the idea is that we have an inner lizard, a reptile brain, and layered on top of that, we have an emotional system, layered on top of that, we have rationality, and that really that our brain is a battleground um, between you know our, our urges and our emotions on the one hand and our rational selves on the other, and this constant battle is occurring um, for the control of our behavior. When, you know, rationality wins, uh, we're, supposedly this means that we are, you know, healthy and uh, moral. Uh, when uh, our inner urges, our inner beast wins, then we're either immoral uh, if we um, didn't control ourselves or we are mentally ill if we couldn't control ourselves. So the whole story here is really a morality play about you know responsibility and ethics. And actually, you can trace it all the way back to ancient Greece uh, with a story that Plato uh, told, an allegory about um, the human um, psyche. And in the mid 20th century, people just looked at lizard brains, you know, with the naked eye, looked at um, you know rat brains, looked at uh, human brains, and kind of tattooed this this uh, morality play onto the structure of the human brain. The problem, though, is that uh, the evidence from evolutionary neuroscience doesn't at all support the idea that our brains evolved in this way. And I would say 
there's at least 30 years of research in neuroscience at this point to show that our brains don't work this way either. There's no part of your brain that is devoted to emotion. There's no part of your brain that's devoted to rationality. Um, and uh, the whole thing is just a really, really compelling myth. I love it. I love it. And there's something else you're, you're, you're bringing up too. And I think it was sort of a bit of a, a, a central core in the book. And that was the issue of resilience. You know, uh, the issue of survival, uh, the issue of the fact that we have adaptability that we learn, we adapt and, and adjust um, to our environment, you know, the young brain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I address the resilience piece, because I think that that's really important. Lord knows, especially with the viral pandemic still rocking and rolling going into its second year, um, how does what you wrote help us understand resilience? Well, I think a thing to understand really is that um, your brain, when a when an infant's brain, when when an infant is born, an infant's brain is born under construction. The infant is um, waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world, and so the wiring instructions come from the sights and sounds and smells and so on of the world, but also from uh, the people around the infant, the people who take care of the infant, who make eye contact with the infant, feed the infant, you know, cuddle the infant, speak to the infant, and so on. These changes in the brain, what's happening is that the baby's brain is wiring itself to its world, wiring itself to its world. It's wiring itself to be able to learn about, predict, and function in a, a set of specific environments that it has been exposed to and that other that adults really are curating for for that infant we call this plasticity and this plasticity actually continues throughout your whole life maybe not at the same pace as in childhood but your brain is always learning it's always adjusting itself to the environment that you're in and this is um a form of um uh, resilience in a sense. And the, so I think the way to think about it is this, that one basic way that your brain um, works is it's using your past experiences to help construct your present experiences. So your experiences right now, some there's a, a neuroscientist, Gerald Edelman, who referred to our experiences as the remembered present. You know, that you are Everything that you do and everything you experience is some combination of what's in your head from the past and what's around you in the world in the present. And so you have this amazing capacity to be able to cultivate experiences for yourself in the present that become the past that your brain will use to predict in the future. So you can think about it as your brain is constantly cultivating or curating your past as a way of controlling who you will be in the future. And this is a major source of resilience in human brains that we utilize all the time and probably could utilize even better if we knew we were doing it. You know, I'll bet uh, trauma therapists, you know, wrap their heads around this concept in a big way. Um, because, 
you know, it, it certainly a child is learning, and uh, that learning uh, curve is exponential. Um, but when trauma takes place, uh, no matter what it is, um, especially if it's prolonged, um, you know, what does that do to the brain? You know, uh, how does that how does that work? How does a traumatized brain um, confront the issue of resilience? Well, the thing to remember, I think, is that a brain wires itself to its world. And so um, if you have experienced adversity, your brain will bootstrap that experience into its own wiring as part of the world that you've experienced. And if the if the adversity is persistent, that's the, wor- that's the world that your brain is wiring itself to. And so when there's a change in your circumstances, your brain has to rewire itself. And that's actually a really hard thing for a number of reasons. It's a really, really hard thing for your brain to do. Um, and so uh, it often requires, um, people often require help um, uh, to pay attention to the aspects of the world which have changed significantly so that your brain can retrain itself or to learn about this new environment which is maybe safer and um, maybe, uh, you know, better for your well-being. So the, the tricky bit here is that because we have such complex brains, um, it's possible for our brains to make an experience in multiple ways. And so even if you retrain your brain to have a new experience, um, you know, those old experiences are still lurking around in your brain. Your brain can still conjure them, um, you know, pretty automatically. And um, uh, it, you, can, you really can never eradicate them or, or like get them out, you know, they can never get them out of the, out of the wiring of your brain really. What you really have to do is, um, you know, seed your brain with new experiences in a new set of environments um, to, to give your brain a lot more opportunity and flexibility to um, experience yourself in the world in a different way. I think that that's brilliantly put. Um, because this has been one of the biggest points I spent a lot of time working with in the field of uh, trauma and trauma-based um, research. And one of the things that I, I see is that uh, people are not put in that type of environment. They're not um, being given uh, that type of trauma-based um, context, saying, okay, w- put the trauma on the table. Now we see it. Now what we have to do is restructure a way for living, for um, redefining normal. Maybe normal before was just trauma. Now it's going to have to be something different. And just knowing that the brain is beautifully adept at doing this, and I, I love your transparency, it's hard. It's hard to do this. This is why PTSD and other things are so difficult to wrap your head around. But um, this sort of segues into something I think that is exquisitely timely, um, given the fact that uh, there are so many uh, challenges going on right now, everything from uh, a viral pandemic to economic to political, a lot of need for um, social connectivity, 
uh, and empathy. And then along comes lesson number five from your your wonderful book, The Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And it's your brain secretly works with other brains. And you bring up something very cool about uh, empathy, which I think is exquisitely timely. Help us with that. Tell us how that works. Sure. Sure. So, you know, your brain, when your brain is controlling your body, you can think of it as running a budget for your body. So your brain's not budgeting, you know, money, it's budgeting glucose and salt and water and oxygen and all the things that um, your body needs to keep you alive and well. And as your brain is doing this, it's attempting to do this in the most efficient way possible. Um, because metabolic efficiency, even though we aren't aware of it, actually turns out to be super important to, um, uh, to health, both mental health and physical health. And it turns out that, you know, we are social animals. So we did not evolve to manage our body budgets on our own. We need other people to help us. Um, so... If you think about your daily life, you know, you can think about sleep and um, food as deposits in your body budget. You can think about um, exercise and, you know, learning something new. So when you when your brain can't predict something very well and it doesn't understand something very well, that's a metabolically costly uh, situation. So moving your body and actually learning something new or dealing with ambiguity are two of the most expensive things that your brain can do. And it turns out that other people make deposits and withdrawals, figuratively speaking, into your body budget. So this is partly why in therapy, um, particularly where trauma is concerned, a really supportive therapist is really useful because what's happening is that, you know, learning something new is really metabolically costly. It's hard. It feels unpleasant, just like exercise. And so if you have someone around who's really supportive of you, that actually eases your metabolic burden a little bit. And, you know, what I like to say is, you know, the best thing for a human nervous system is another human. The worst thing for a human nervous system is also another human. And the reason why is that we affect each other in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, if you and I were in the same room and we liked each other and we trusted each other, our heart rates would synchronize, our breathing would synchronize, we might m mirror each other's actions. If you um, crossed your legs, I might cross my feet. If you put your arm up to your chin, your hand up to your chin, I might put my you know, hand up to my forehead. Um, Humans are always doing these kinds of things. We regulate each other with words um, because our because words actually the parts of the brain that in that re help us speak and understand language actually regulate our nervous systems, our our heart rates, our breathing, and so on. Um, so we're regulating each other in all kinds of ways, and this can make it easier or harder to run a, a body budget efficiently. If you're surrounded by people who, who love you and who care about you, where you have supportive relationships and you experience those relationships as supportive, that's like metaphorically making deposits into your body budget because it's sort of easing 
the burden really of body budgeting that you would normally have to bear, you know, that would be harder to bear if you were doing it by yourself. Interesting. And yeah, 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 I'm just thinking, you know, collectively, um, where there's a real need for healing, you know, um, as a physician, um, I'm involved in so much COVID. Uh, I actually oversee clinical trials as we're working with um, the COVID, uh, the post-COVID syndrome and this and that. And oh my God, uh, small miracles take place, um, Lisa. You know, it's, it, it sort of blows my mind when you get a whole team together and, and, there, and you could just feel the love and support for the patient who is absolutely in the throes of suffering. And, and how much that affects the patient. Sometimes it's all they need. It, it's almost, it's, it's very unspoken in many respects. Is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's, ex that's one example of what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, we, we sometimes when we, we read about or, or hear about mind-body connections, it's, it's discussed in this kind of like gauzy, air, you know, it's kind of like gauzy met metaphysical kind of way. But it's really very basic and biological. We evolved as a species to regulate each other's nervous systems. When someone dies and you feel like you've lost a part of yourself, it's because you have. You've lost someone who helped to bear the burden of your body budget, who basically made your nervous system slightly less more expensive, like slightly less expensive to your brain. And when you lose that person, you're absorbing that extra metabolic cost. Um, so we can provide comfort to people. We can also provide extra burden to people um, by the way that we act and the things that we say, you know, the things that we do. And so the issue of empathy is, is really interesting because, um, you know, the research shows that generally speaking, it's, it seems to be easier for people to have empathy for other people who are similar to them. So there's the coordination of, of nervous systems seems to happen a little more easily when people perceive each other to be, um, you know, to be similar to the self. So Pam, if you and I were in the same room, we might be able to be more empathic to each other, research suggests, because we're both women, maybe, or because, uh, you know, maybe we had similar experiences growing up, or maybe because, you know, we're in similar um, work, uh, you know, domains, or, uh, you know, maybe because we, um, we've had similar travel experiences. I'm just, you know, giving lots of examples of, of dimensions of similarity. It doesn't mean that you can't be empathic to someone who is different from you in some way or that that person can't be empathic to you. It just means that it's a little more metabolically costly and therefore it's a little harder. I love it. And one of my uh, uh, patients once taught me a beautiful phrase that I put in uh, several of my books. It's called body dollars. You know, you've got bank dollars, you've got body dollars. How many body dollars did it cost you to have to, you know, empathize with someone who really, who you don't fully understand or relate to? A lot. 
You know, it, it, it does. And so, but if you and I are kind of on the same wavelength, like, you know, if I go in a room and, and we're all discussing a patient and um, it's the, the air is just filled with support and empathy and, and real love for that person, you know, I mean, God, it didn't cost anything. That's cheap <laughs> because I don't have to metabolically um, do much of anything um, to sort of go with exactly. the flow. You know? Yeah, when someone is when someone's more similar to you, your brain is able to use your past experience to automatically guess what that other person might be thinking or feeling or or what they're likely to do next. If that person is very different from you, then your brain is going to have a harder time um, guessing using your past experience to guess what that person's experience is like. And you might even be what philosophers call experientially blind to that person. If that person is really, really different from you, then um, you might have a hard time. You might have sort of a, a sort of a temporary what's called experiential blindness, which is that you just you just don't know. Actually, you can't guess, and it's not because there's anything wrong with you or anything wrong with them. It's just that the either you know it takes some extra effort which translates into more withdrawals from your body budget and you just don't have the energy to, 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 to spend, or maybe you just don't have the background knowledge. Um, the interesting thing though is that if you're really motivated to empathize with someone and you find a way to identify some point of commonality with that person, even if it's just you both have kids or you both breathe oxygen, um, you can find a way to have some connection to that person. Um, you know, I, I think a really good example of this is actually from a movie that, I, I, there's a movie called District Nine, um, which is, a, it's kind of a science fiction-y movie, but it's a fantastic journey in empathy. Because you start the movie and there's this character, this main character, who looks kind of like an insect. It's like a like an alien from outer space. And it looks kind of like a shrimp or like an insect. And it just looks very unhuman-like. And um, the the you have no empathy at all for this character or what this character is going through. By the end of the movie, you are deeply, deeply, your reactions are emotions deeply entwined with this character because there are all these ways in which this character has characteristics that are really similar to characteristics that you may have. Like you love your children and you want to protect them and you would do anything to protect them. And, you know, that's what this character is doing. And so it's just this really interesting journey that the director takes you on from having experiential blindness to what this creature might be thinking or doing, what might be thinking or might be might be preparing to do next to by the end of the movie, not only are you, you know, is your brain predicting well in sync with this character, but you're celebrating his triumphs and you're, you know, crying at his tragedies. Oh my God. Um, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, it, this really drives this home and, 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 segues beautifully to the last thing I wanted to really talk about. And that is the difference between a brain and a mind. In other words, you have a beautiful lesson here, lesson six. Brains make 
more than one kind of mind. Help us with that a little bit. Just sort of clarify what you meant by that. Well, if you look at a human brain and you look at it, not necessarily microscopically, but you know, you're just looking at its structure kind of with your naked eye. Brain, human brains look very similar to one another. They all have similar parts. The parts are connected in more or less the same ways. Of course, when you peer deep into the molecular structure of brains, that's where the diff you see really the differences. Why do you see those differences? Because brains wire themselves to their environment. They wire themselves to their world. They wire themselves to their physical world and to their social world. If you look at different cultures across the world that, that are in different parts of the world, some parts of the physical world are the same, but some are different. And if you look at the social worlds of those cultures, they can be very, very different. A mind, a mind is what a brain does, okay? Your mind is a moment in your brain's conversation with your body and the other brain's and bodies around you. Your, your mind is what your brain does as it is conversing with your body and, and the world. If the world that your brain wires itself to is different from the world that my brain wires itself to, then you and I will have very, very different kinds of minds. Interesting. So this, this is, you know, the thing I find really interesting, you know, Pam, is that humans really like variety. We love variety in food. We, we don't want to eat the same dinner every day. We love variety in clothes. We don't want to dress the same every day. We love variety in all kinds of ways, except in each other. We really have a hard time with people who are different from us, who think different, who look different, who have different preferences, different beliefs. I think it's really important for people to understand that evolution selects for variation. It's important, it might make it really hard for an individual human to be surrounded by people he or she is, is very different from, but from a species level perspective, variation is the norm. It is important for our species to be, it's important for people to be highly different from one another. That's how our species survives and thrives. Uh, in so many different environments around the world. Interesting. You know, I was reading in that chapter, um, you know, as you're, as you're looking at different kinds of minds, you had a beautiful little piece here. You know, think about the minds of great mathematicians who can conceive of calculations that other minds cannot. In other words, they can see the world in algorithms and, you know, uh, different paradigms that for the life of you, you can't. Um, or you think about someone like um, Greta Thunberg, okay? So she is a, I, I think everyone knows, a teenager who sailed around the world, you know, offering really tough talk about climate change. She, you know, and, and she admits, she's very open about it, that her mind is on the autism spectrum. And she says things that others aren't willing to say. I mean, she just lets it rip. She calls her condition a superpower, 
that helps her continue her mission when people criticize her efforts. These are words from your book. Um, I, I really like that. It was, you know, it just gave me um, uh, a nice taste testing of the extraordinary uh, diversity of minds out there and uh, our perceptions of reality, because you dealt with that in another chapter, um, which was, you know, what the heck is reality? What is the real world? Uh, and and this is all clearly wired in your brain to see it based upon your experiences, your expectations, your belief systems. I mean, this gets pretty complex, doesn't it? Sure. Well, I mean, what's really, really interesting here is that, you know, your brain and my brain are probably similar in some ways and different in some ways. The microwiring is probably different because, you know, even though we're both women and we both speak English, we probably had, and maybe we had some similar experiences growing up, we probably had really different experiences at other times. And maybe I've traveled to some parts of the world and you've traveled to different parts of the world. There are lots of differences that can make human minds really different from one another within a culture. But here's the cool thing. There are some things that you and I agree on that we don't even think about. Like, for example, we participate in a make-believe world that we both contribute to without really thinking about it. Like, we both impose a function of currency on little pieces of paper so that they become money. So if you and I go out for a coffee and I give, you know, $10 to the barista at the coffee shop, all three of us, and in fact, many other people who are involved in, you know, owning, maybe selling the beans and, you know, owning the store and so on, are all participating in this complete fiction, which is that we made up the idea of currency. We imposed a function on pieces of paper that, the pieces of paper don't have by their physical nature. And because we all agree on this, this function, we all agree on this fiction, it's real, we made it real. And most of our lives, Pam, a good deal of our lives are based on these kinds of fiction called social reality. Um, so lesson seven in the book really deals with how human brains basically work together to create social reality, this kind of made up world that we all live in, and that is, is, you know, for lack of a better word, our day-to-day -day reality. How do we do it? What's really miraculous about it? And what is sort of worrisome about it? Um, or what could be maybe problems with it? You know, it's a superpower that we have, that humans have, that no other species that we know has. Um, but superpowers are only really awesome things to have when you know you have them. If you're mistaking social reality for physical reality, you think something you made up is actually physical in the real world, that can sometimes lead to problems. And I talk a little bit about that, you know, in the in lesson seven. I love it. And and actually, lesson seven was one of my favorites. Um, and I, I love that issue of social reality. You call it a superpower that emerges from an ensemble of human brains. And then you end it with every type of social reality is a dividing line. Some dividing lines help people. Some, such as driving laws that prevent head-on collisions. 
other dividing lines benefit some people hurt others, such as slavery and social class. People debate the morality of such dividing lines, but like it or not, each of us bears some responsibility every time we reinforce them. A superpower works best when you know you have it. Wow. I mean, uh, okay. I mean, seriously, Lisa, I could sit here for like five hours. Um, you wouldn't like it. I would. Um, <laughs> just to be. <laughs> I, I think I would, just en- to- I would enjoy it immensely, immensely. If, uh, if you could get somebody to clear my calendar for all the other appointments I have. Uh, <laughs> so. Here, give me your damn calendar. I'll clear it for you. I'll show you how you do it. It's called napalm. Just throw a little <laughs> ball of that stuff right on it. Yeah, seriously, everyone, we have been talking to just a, an incredible scientific icon in the field of neuroscience, and that is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, one of the uh, top scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. And I'm telling you, you are a total loser. Do you Are you listening up? You are a total loser. If you do not go out... Right Right now and buy this book. It is the best. Seven and a half lessons about the brain. And I not only have the book, but I have the audible. And this is one of those books that you eat like carrot cake. I'm back to carrot cake. Um, and that is uh, you do it chapter by chapter. Listen and maybe re-listen again because it's so rich. And you say, wow, sometimes you need time to just digest, let it settle in. And then you have that aha moment, a little epiphany. Um, and it works. I just find it to be fabulous. And, you know, kudos to you, Lisa, for writing a book that's, you know, really meant for everybody. I mean, you could have made this as complex as hell, and I'm sure you've done that in textbooks. However, um, this, I think, is a beautiful read for all those people you were talking about earlier who were sitting around you at that little, you know, gathering, socially distanced, of course, um, and uh, asking about the brain and, and just being, you know, transfixed by what you were talking about. So, Lisa, thank you so, so much for both your wit and your wisdom uh, on this podcast. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Excellent. And everyone run over to iTunes right now and rate and review the show because I want to know what you thought. What is your feedback about this really cool episode? Well, well, listen, I'm into it because I'm the host of the Herb Podcast. I'm Dr. Pam Peek. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek, Twitter, Pam Peek MD, Instagram, Pam Peek MD, and remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Thanks for listening today, and please stay safe and stay well.